Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Rob Tursick. Rob is one of the world's most prolific creators of interactive content. He has designed and created interactive experiences on every digital platform, including satellite television, game consoles, broadband internet, and mobile networks. He provides strategic insight and advice to many companies, including Nokia, Motorola, AMD, Sony Computer Entertainment, Turner Broadcasting, PBS, CNN, Interpublic Group, and Reed Exhibitions. He is the chairman of the board of directors for the Creative Visions Foundation in Malibu, California. Welcome, Rob. Welcome back. Well, thank you very much, Jim. It's great to be here. Yeah, we had a great conversation back, I don't know, a month and a half ago in EP 133, where we talked at length about his very interesting book, Vaporized, Solid Strategies for Success in a Dematerialized World. We didn't have time to cover the section in Vaporized on education, so we agreed that today we're going to do a focused deep dive into Rob's ideas in that most important domain. But before we turn to education, maybe Rob could take a moment uh, to lay out the concept of Vaporized at a high level to ground those folks in the audience who didn't hear that earlier conversation. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Thanks, Jim. So Vaporized is the title of my book, which was uh, selected as the International Book of the Year at the Frankfurt Book Fair in t- 2016. And um, the book Vaporized is all about this phenomenon of uh, replacing physical things with software. And that sounds like a perfectly obvious phenomenon, but when you start to peel it back and look at how it works, it's rather complex. We're talking about billions of items that are transacted through a global supply chain being replaced by software. And those digital replacements move through a completely different supply chain or value chain. And that value chain is dominated by companies who understand the control points and they are able to extract value from those control points. So a good part of my book explains the rise of companies like Google, Apple, and Facebook and so forth. These are companies that dominate the digital supply chain and control how people exchange value around digital objects or dematerialized objects. So the book looks at the dematerialized economy. One of the things that comes forward is that there's there's a couple different kinds of products that can get vaporized. A pure information product, like a song or a picture or a, a video, a pure information product lends itself to this. And it's no surprise, therefore, that media is one of the very first industries that was vaporized. Whereas things that are, you know, uh, require they they pertain to our physical bodies, I guess, things like transportation and food. It's pretty hard to vaporize those, but the services around those are already in the process of automation. And so we're starting to see robots um, emerge that can handle some of those physical devices. So there's a way to kind of extract value out of those physical things and turn it into software. But one of the interesting parts of the book at the very end is the chapter on education. And Jim, when I wrote this book, I didn't expect this to happen, but it it was by far the most controversial chapter. So when people wrote reviews of my book, they would always zero in on the education chapter. It comes right at the end of the book. And one of the things I freely admit is that the, the whole education establishment hasn't yet been vaporized, but I do believe it will be. And I think it's ripe for it because ultimately education is an information product 
but it's delivered in the most cumbersome physical format right now, U.S. colleges. Yep. We'll get into that. So, uh, yeah, that's great grounding. Let's start off with uh, what many of us have heard chatter on the Internet and in magazines on TV about some of these projections about technological unemployment. I mean, this goes all, all the way back to Keynes when he predicted that by 1960, we'd be working 15 hours a week. Or it didn't happen. Oh, well, <laughs> but it could happen in the future. Or a whole bunch of people could lose their jobs. Uh, in fact, recently on 60 Minutes, a uh, prediction that 40% of jobs will be eliminated by AI in the next 15 years. Seems a little extreme to me, but nonetheless, there are certainly a whole bunch of jobs that will be replaced by ever-improving AI and other things like robotics, etc. So how much of a real emergency do you believe there is around technological employment that's going to be a, a real, perhaps perhaps finally the driver that will force education to reform? I'd like to reframe the question, is it an emergency? So, so let me state first off that obviously there will be a significant impact on employment by artificial intelligence. My perspective on this is a little different from the norm. Uh, you've heard all these horror stories about mass unemployment. You referred to a few of them. I think those are scary, scary stories that grab headlines and grab a lot of attention. Jim, this same story has been told again and again and again since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's the story of the last 300 years. As humans rely on machines and mechanical solutions to replace physical labor, people's jobs were destroyed. But those people migrated to other jobs that were, frankly, a higher and better use of their skills as human beings. So uh, the summary there is if you do a job that a robot can do, you're probably going to lose that job eventually. It probably will be automated. If your job can be automated, it probably will be automated. I think that's a safe starting point, safe supposition. Now, what kinds of jobs, uh, you know, that, that famous report, I think it was from um, Oxford University, the report you're mentioning, where it projected that 45% of jobs were subject to some form of displacement by robotics or artificial intelligence. Well, the jobs that can be replaced easily are those that are repetitive, predictable, routine. You know, if your job is something that you can train someone else to do in 20 minutes, chances are pretty good that is going to get replaced. And the replacement will be a combination of two things. One is robotics, you know, which is actually like a machine that can physically do the job. And the other one is artificial intelligence. And these usually work in sync, you know, so often the two are used synonymously, robotics and AI. But there's a whole other dimension that we don't ever talk about, and I don't know why, which is simply software automation without a robot. And software automation has eliminated one hell of a lot more jobs than robots have. You know, the, the world population of robots still is in the hundreds of thousands. It's not that huge. And that's because it's really hard to get a robot to actually function without breaking stuff. Meanwhile, think of all the jobs that have been replaced by things like voicemail systems, you know, jobs, receptionist jobs, uh, people who are in customer care. Anytime you pick up a phone and call customer service, you're not really typically dealing with a human being. Those jobs have all been replaced with software and there's no machine. There's no robot. Uh, there's not even really artificial intelligence in many cases. Now, the second part of your question is what's coming next. And if you want, we can talk a little bit about that because there is a big change coming in the next 10 years with artificial intelligence. Shall we jump right into that? Sure. Let's talk about it because, you know, I agree with you that while people focus on the obvious things like self-driving cars and uh, warehouse robots, there's already been some automation in what we would think of as highly cognitive work like creating trusted estates documents in the legal domain. Exactly. Doing tax advice. 
Yes. Both of which are at least AI assisted at this point, which reduces the need for lawyers and accountants in those domains. And, and that's a really, really important point, right? It didn't get rid of the lawyer. It didn't get rid of the accountant. It just made the accountant more efficient. It made the attorney more efficient so that you'll use, you know, a boilerplate contract that a software service like LegalZoom can provide. But if you're smart, you're going to pay for an hour of attorney's time to review that and make sure that your bases are covered. If you're not, you know, hey, maybe take your chances with the robot version and, and see how it goes. So there is a level of disruption that you point out that's already happening. And remember, this isn't really involving a lot of AI yet, right? So these are just software systems. And it's broad and it's widespread. They're sort of AI, old what they call good old-fashioned AI. Mm-hmm. But they're not probably on the road to artificial general intelligence, i.e. they're not powerful AI. They're they're narrow, niche AI. That's true. That's true. And and let's set aside general artificial intelligence because that's not even on the roadmap at this point. You know, that that's so far out there. Well, no, it's an intriguing possibility, but like some people say it's as soon as 10 years. One of the, the best experts I know will bet actual money on 10 to 15 years. I personally don't believe it, but I think more like 50 years. But Anyway, yeah, look, 10 years is a long time. I have no doubt that at some point there will be something like an autonomous system that can reason and think and be conscious and so forth. You know, I, I don't have any doubt about that. I'm not a, a naysayer. But in the time frame that we're talking about, it, our time frame should be about 10 years. And, and the reason for that is, you know, if you make it through the next 10 years, then you can deal with the following 10 years. But in the, not a hell of a lot we can do about the 2030s at this stage. So in the next 10 years, I don't think there are many serious people who think that general artificial intelligence is going to be viable. And, and that's a really important point to make because you hear a lot of this hype around the singularity, how everything's going to change, how suddenly robots will be smarter than people or computer systems will be smarter than people. As you pointed out, in certain domains, very narrow domains, that's already the case. And it's not just chess or games like Go, where an AI can trounce a human being routinely. Uh, now it's extending to many other fields. You know, visual processing, uh, the ability to interpret uh, certain health records or certain health images. Robots routinely outscore humans on this. And so, um, or I should say, you know, artificial intelligence routinely outscores humans on these in these features and many other categories. So that's going to continue to happen. Does it mean we won't have radiologists? No, of course, we're going to still have radiologists. Just, it just means radiologists isn't, isn't going to waste their time trying to find spots on your lungs or the doctor won't waste his time trying to find that. They'll just turn it over the ad. They'll be more efficient. It may mean we need less radiologists. I think then that's an important consideration. Yeah. Or maybe healthcare will get cheaper and we'll be able to provide service to more people. Nah, they'll find a way to rip us off. But <laughs> it, you know, their costs might go down, but I guarantee the prices won't. Those motherfuckers. Right? <laughs> that's a distinctly American point of view. <laughs> Okay. At any rate, so so I don't think we're arguing here. I think we both agree that automated systems are coming, uh, semi-intelligent systems are coming. They're not fully autonomous, which is important yet, but this is what's changing right now. So right now, and I mean like you know this year, 2021, dozens and dozens of companies now are, are focused on high-speed training of autonomous systems. And um, this is where machine learning fits in because they're realizing you, you, you probably can't program artificial intelligence, but you might be able to train your way to some sort of intelligence, uh, general intelligence, you know, that the system itself, if you train it enough, will start to think. I'm not sure if that's going to work or not, but I can tell you that people are hell bent on that. And there's a ton of people working on that right now. Now, this is important because to the degree that these systems become autonomous, that's, to, that's the degree to which we don't need people. That's where the displacement starts to occur. You don't want to compete against a machine. You won't win. You want to work with the machine. So it's pretty safe to bet that in the 2020s, 
all of us are going to have to learn a new skill, which is how to coexist with robots and automated systems as they begin to infiltrate all forms of work. And not all of us are good at that right now. A lot of people are resistant to it. Partly we're resistant to it because we've been conditioned from the newspaper and the you know the sensationalist headlines that robots are coming to steal our jobs and the robot apocalypse is here and it's going to take over everything and the robots will kill us and all that stuff. These sort of Terminator scenarios that are repeated again and again and again, that's embedded in people's consciousness. So people are resistant to automated systems. That's not a really good career path. The better career path, I think, is to understand these systems and learn how to work with them. Because if you can be the master of that system, you're going to be 10 times more effective. So think of AI as a superpower that makes you 10 times more effective in your job, or maybe 100 times more effective in your job. And I'm starting to see this now. I'm starting to see individual consultants, market research firms promote themselves as powered by AI or augmented by AI. And I think that's actually pretty smart because that shift is happening right now as we speak. So I think everybody wants to be positioned that way, that, um, you know, I have the superpower, it's artificial intelligence in my particular specialty. Here's how I use it. Here's the advantages to you. No, it doesn't cost you more. In fact, it's a benefit to you that it saves you money because we get there faster with better data and so forth. So anyway, this is, uh, this is an exciting time right now. But scary thought, because it means that the job market is going to change so dramatically uh, that we're going to have a lot of dinosaurs on our hands. And I'm looking at, you know, baby boomers, people my age, uh, around my age, you know, even Gen Xers who haven't adapted to this, they're going to find it increasingly difficult to compete in a world where younger people who grow up with these systems have a sort of symbiotic relationship with them, uh, where they understand how these systems work and they have a completely different workflow. It's harder for older people to understand how to adapt to a new workflow. So there's a gigantic remedial education task ahead of us. And as I say, this is spreading across all industries and just about every job type now. Yeah. So basically it uh, raises the stakes once again on education, right? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your job tomorrow. It just means if you want to keep a career you know, longer term, you got you to gotta go back and sharpen up your axe a little bit. You got you to get some new skills. Of course, what it'll continue to do is do what various things have been doing since the 1970s, which is to increase the premium on so-called education, right? When I uh, went off to college as a working class kid in 1971, it was a close call. Uh, School teacher, which is where I thought I was headed as a career, paid about the same as a carpenter, right? And uh, since then, there's been quite a uh, uh, divergence between the uh, blue collar and the white collar. I think uh, last time I checked in the county where I grew up, uh, school teachers now make about twice what carpenters make. And in general, anyone without advanced education has been fucked by the economic system since about 1975. Yeah, that's true. And this will only accelerate that because those who can become wielders of superpowers, right, will be worth a lot more in the job market than those who can't. And if it requires education to reach that point, which it may or may not, which we'll talk about later, then the premium education will go up yet again, which will give those thieving bastards in the educational industrial complex yet another opportunity to raise prices, right? (laughs) Uh, We should talk about how come the tuition keeps going up and it goes up at twice the rate of inflation. That's that's worth considering. More than that. It's like craziness. I went back and checked before the call. And from the time I was in college, 71 to 75, if you adjust for inflation, Educational costs has gone up 4x after adjusting for inflation since 1975. And that was at a uh, private elite university. At a state university, it's gone up even more than that. Uh, State universities were dirt cheap in my day. 
Jim, now here's your opportunity to tell me that the quality of the education has also increased 4x or maybe even 5x in that same time. It has not. Prior to COVID, I spent a fair amount of time on campuses. I'm on uh, science governance boards on various uh, universities. I hang out on universities very often. And frankly, it's certainly not better and it's probably worse. The number of courses people take, the intensity of the courses, there's been, of course, a tremendous amount of grade inflation that reduces the level of effort required by the students, et cetera. So I, let's be generous and say it's maybe no worse, but I see not a lick of sign that it's any better. So 4X for the same damn thing, unlike healthcare, which has also gone up something like 3X, uh, but at least uh, healthcare and it actually can do some miracles, right? Can actually do a whole lot of stuff it couldn't do in 1975. Not obvious to me that education is doing anything better than it did in 1975 when it comes to its actual role of education. Now we have a whole shitload more administrators. Uh, we have way fancier dorms. Yeah, that's right. We got really fancy food in the dining hall. We have first class athletic facilities, but those really have nothing to do with the prime mission of education. That's it. Well, great question then. So what is the prime mission of education? This is really crucial, right? We know there's a need to educate people for a changing workforce and to equip them with skills that are going to carry them forward into their careers. But I'm not sure that's what the university thinks their job is. I don't know if they see it as a vocational exercise, you know, where you're going to college for four years. Are they meant to equip you with lifelong skills that will serve you in a career? I think a lot of parents assume that's what the kids are getting when they send their kids off to college. I'm not sure if students expect that or not. And I don't think that university academics or the management of the universities, I don't think that they think it's their job to do vocational training, especially at elite universities. Yeah, certainly not the fancy universities, right? And the tier one research universities, you know, top tier state universities. Though the community college, I've also had some dealings with community colleges lately, they are very oriented towards jobs and they have no uh, false pride about the fact that they are educating the next generation of Socrates and Aristotle, right? Right. But at the fancy universities, uh, certainly an issue. Now, people would say, well, uh, okay, what do you expect a college to do? Are they supposed to teach people how to work with robots? Are they supposed to teach people how to do a, you know, how to do a marketing job or how to be a salesperson? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think the function of higher education is to teach people how to think, to transform young minds, young undisciplined minds, into adult mature minds, uh, minds that can focus, that can think critically, that can formulate an argument, that can handle evidence, that can come to a reasonable judgment about the quality of that evidence and make good decisions, and communicate it, argue it, write about it, and talk about it. Uh, I think these are key skills. They're going to be valuable skills in the future, too, because at the moment, those are not things that automated systems can do very well. Now, they might change, obviously, as big trend towards that very skill set. But even then, that's an opportunity for collaboration, I think, because human judgment will always be considered valuable, at least for the foreseeable time frame that we're talking about, the next 10 years. The problem we're seeing at universities is that there's no discernible improvement on those critical thinking skills, the ability to formulate judgments and the ability to write about that. And in my book, I cite a re report called Academically Adrift. And the authors are Richard Arum and Josipa Roxa. They noticed that it, among 45% of students, they, they surveyed thousands of students at universities. And at, after four years of education, they found no discernible, significant improvement in those skills in half of the student population. So half the students are getting some value out of 45% are not really getting any transformation. Uh, you know, anecdotally, all the things you mentioned, Jim, are one of the reasons why this isn't happening. 
you know, where the university is putting resources, well, they're not putting them into the classroom. They're not like recruiting and paying teachers more. I can tell you as a person who's been a professor, salaries for professors are not are not that attractive. They're up a bit since 1975 after inflation, quite a fair amount, but not 4x. Yeah, and administrative salaries are administrative salaries are up 3 or 4x. So and the count even worse. I just read uh, the other day someplace the University of Wisconsin has basically 93 people in the department of wokey bullshit, right? What the hell, right? 93 people bigger than any of their academic departments. And then uh, and then the other place they're putting it as you point out is in athletic facilities and you know, in my book, I talk about um, turning education into a luxury good because what the, that's what they've done. It's, uh, you know, it's like a spa. Some universities have spa-like facilities. So you're sending a kind of a complicated signal to young people, the 18-year-olds who attend a college. Am I here to study and work and, you know, knuckle down in the library and do things that are basically boring that I wouldn't otherwise do because they're hard and they make me think? Or am I here to party my ass off and have a fun time? And, you know, if you can party like a rock star in a hot tub at a college, why wouldn't you? Of course, 45% of students are going to choose that. That's actually not an irrational decision. If it were free, right? But unfortunately, it's not, right? That's right. <laughs> have you ever read the book? It's an amazing book called The Case Against Education, Why the Educational System is a Waste of Time and Money by Brian Kaplan from George Mason University. He's a libertarian. Well, I have, and I'm familiar with it. And in fact, you know, he, he's an important voice. So let, you know, to be clear, he's a libertarian. He comes with a very strongly inflected viewpoint about this subject matter. And he challenges the notion that universities confer any value on, on their students, that it's, you know, what is the actual value? His perspective is that the actual learnings don't amount to much, and it's very hard to uh, measure them. And all those experiential things, like better athletic facilities and you know, and uh, and spa-like features, those are just intangibles. Even something like the network of you know relationships that you develop, even that he would consider an intangible. So his perspective is that eighty percent of the value of a college diploma is the signaling value that it sends to the marketplace. So when you come out of a college. Uh, and you, you graduate with a degree, that diploma sends a signal to future employers that you're a person who can handle complex, abstract thinking and make reasonable conclusions and intelligent judgments about it. That's what you're paying for is basically the seal of approval. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. And that, and that certainly seems to be the case. We had back on EP32, Jason Brennan from Georgetown University, who also writes on this topic. And again, we talked a whole lot about how what's really going on is signaling. And as we get deeper into your ideas here, we'll have a whole section dedicated to perhaps some ideas on how to do signaling in a, in a much more modern fashion. Well, since I, since I wrote the book, I had the opportunity to talk to some um, people who do hiring. And generally, when I speak to managers and businesses as a consultant, I talk to lots of companies. I ask them, you know, what do you look for in a candidate? How do you recruit? When it comes to an engineering job, Generally, they don't really care about your degree or where you got it from. They want to see the kind of code you can write. They want to see what you can make. You know, in other words, they're looking for practical skills. The very best people do that. But the vast proportion of Fortune 500 companies still require a college degree for programmers, which is nuts, right? Uh, the top places like Facebook and Google no longer do because they have the skills to separate the wheat from the chafe. Uh, but your typical bank or uh, big retailer or something, they have no idea. So they basically say, oh, well, if they graduate from Ohio State with a computer science degree and a you know 3.5 grade point average, they're probably fairly good. So they have abdicated and over-credentialed the job, essentially. So you've just summarized Brian Kaplan's theory about signaling value, because that's precisely what he's arguing, right? That that diploma, encoded in that diploma, is a guarantee of some sort, a promise that this person is capable of doing the job that you're recruiting for. 
And that's a shortcut for a recruiter or for a hiring manager. They can just see that diploma or they see that that person has a degree or claims to have a degree, and then they don't have to investigate further. Obviously, buyer beware. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, we got we have now the growing economic value of these credentials because of, amongst other things, first the technological and now the AI replacement of uh, unskilled labor and the upgrading of the capacity of people to know how to use these advanced things. And the universities have turned these things into excuses and opportunities to raise prices funded by our corrupt student loan system. And uh, we're, we're in quite a place. You know, the, the yeah. amount of student debt is now larger than the amount of auto loan debt or credit card debt in the United States. That's yeah. a fucking scary statistic. It's scandalous. And I think the figures are on 1.5 trillion of student debt. You can't get rid of it. It's toxic debt. And there's real impact from that. Jim, you know, when you graduate from college and you've got tens of thousands of dollars of student loans, that's going to affect your decision about where to go to work. Absolutely. So students who graduate with student loans are inherently more conservative. They're, they're uh, risk averse in a way that a student who has zero student loans will be more open to taking a risk with their, uh, with their career. And for the simple reason is that, you know, anybody who's responsible about their credit score is not going to want to default. And so therefore, you're going to need to get a steady paycheck. And these days, those jobs are harder and harder to get, particularly for young graduates. And so there's a lot of competition for any job that feels like a secure, stable source of, of income uh, so that you can pay down student loans. The other thing that happens is that people don't leave jobs. Uh, so where you would expect young people to be nimble, move to cities where there's opportunities, switch careers, go to a startup, maybe go into a new industry or something like that where there's growth potential. Uh, if you're held back by student loans, you're going to think twice before you take that opportunity. And so this causes students to be cautious at a time in their lives when they should actually be taking more and more risk. And so the very forces that we described in the beginning of the show that are causing so much turmoil and so much change, those forces require us to be adaptive, to take some risk, to learn on the job, to you know step up and maybe master some new skills. Unfortunately, the fact of student debt is going to hold a lot of people back and make them really cautious about taking that risk. Yeah, and that's an interesting statistic. And of course, this isn't the only driver of it. But, uh, you know, we think of ourselves as a, America as a mobile society where people move to chase opportunity. The data is pretty clear since, uh, say, 1975. The rate at which people move across state lines, period, for whatever reasons, is half of what it was in 1975. Half. I mean, that's tremendous. And yeah. I think part of it is two-career families where, you know, to make a move, you basically have to find jobs for both. Yep. I think that's a big part of it. But for young people before they're partnered up or married or what have you, you know, I think a lot, as you're saying, a whole lot of it is the, the inherent conservatism that comes from having this massive anchor around your neck. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because you can't default on student loan. It, you know, it, they, they'll, they'll keep coming after you. And I know folks who, who have had that problem. Another reason why people don't, well, labor mobility is so low in the United States and people don't switch jobs or move so much is healthcare because we're the only industrial country in the world that ties healthcare to employment. It's a stupid system. It's actually hurting us in terms of workforce innovation and labor mobility because if people knew that they could get the same healthcare in another state, they would be more inclined to try something new and move to a different city. And go to a startup, you know, because some yeah. often startups can't even afford healthcare, right? Shit, when I was doing startups, uh, we provided top of the line, 90% paid health insurance. And it costs like $150 a month. You know, now it's like 3000 a month. It's something ridiculous like that. I don't know, maybe not quite that much, but it's like way much more expensive. So yeah, very, very important point. Uh, a little aside here, which is 
you know, the universities are, uh, unfor- you know, you can, we can say, oh, the evil universities. But of course, in reality, they've been caught in a game theoretic trap, you know, around facilities. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know about this administrator horse shit, where that's coming from. I mean, if you just went into a typical university and just shot three out of four administrators at random, right, roll a, a flip a coin twice, unless it comes up heads twice, you shoot the person, would probably have no discernible effect on education at all. If you ask the professors, it would cause the quality of education to go up. It would cause the uh, cost to go down a lot. So I don't know where all those administrators came from. Four X more administrators used to be. But facilities, it's an arms race. Unfortunately, one college makes the move to fancy, fancy, fancy. And if that attracts the students, which apparently it does, then the other colleges are forced to respond in the classic game theoretical trap, uh, we often call race to the bottom in game B, in this case, it's race to the top. Who can provide the most amazing ah sushi bar? You know, we used to have. You, know, you, you remember what college food was like, right? Certainly wasn't yeah. sushi bars and cold cuts. I can tell you that, right? Yeah. So you get right. colleges are unfortunately caught in this bizarre game theoretic trap. Yeah, and by the way, you know, I, I don't happen to consider U.S. colleges or universities evil or corrupt or anything else. I, I think they're caught in this dynamic that is not of their creation, but they they do participate in it. Because it's, it's worth bearing in mind that even though the cost of tuition goes up, the actual cost of providing the education is going up even more. And so those, those universities rely massively on their endowments and on donations and other kinds of support to offset the costs that aren't covered. Uh, and it's also worth pointing out that the United States government in the past funded a great deal of research at the university level. And, and by the way, that was excellent. You know, that's one of the reasons why we have things like the Internet and satellites and mobile phones and many of the advances that we had in medical and healthcare fields. Unfortunately, the government funding for basic research at universities has also dried up. Mm, I don't know. It's, there's still a whole lot of it. It's, it's more than there used to be, actually. Okay. It's moved from categories. There's a lot more in biomedical than there used to be, like huge. In the uh, physical sciences, it's about kept pace with inflation, but hasn't exceeded inflation, though it probably should have. So in aggregate, the total federal government spending on research funding has actually gone up and exceeded the growth in inflation, but that's mostly from the disproportionate growth in biomedical. One thing I know is that as state budgets have come under pressure, state universities have become stingier about how much of tuition they will cover. And so that has caused the cost of state college tuition to go up. More than private, more than private as a percentage. Yeah, that's exactly right. Where it's starting to approach, you know, so a, a private college in the elite level in the United States, the tuition is $65,000, could be 55000 but it, it's a lot. I mean, it's exactly double what it was when I was a student myself. And so that's at an elite school. But what's remarkable to me is that at a state school, you could pay $30,000 or $35,000 in tuition. That differential used to be way bigger. Uh, you know, the gap between what you pay for elite private school versus what you pay for a, a public state school used to be much bigger. And now uh, that gap is closing. And I think that's really troublesome because that's a source of a lot of uh, student debt. Yep, absolutely. And these are people who are ambitious. Let's bear in mind, like the, you know, people who are taking on student debt, there's nothing wrong with that. This is not like credit card debt where they're free spending, you know, drunken sailor type spending. These are people who are making in a, you know, in a relatively informed decision. They might not have all the information about what, what's on the other side of the university degree, but they're trying to make a smart decision to invest in themselves. And they're basically borrowing from their future earnings in order to improve their skill set. What we're talking about is whether they're actually getting what they're bargaining for, right? So taking on the student debt, I'm not going to quibble about that. If you want to get an education and you don't have the resource to pay for the tuition now, well, then you're going to borrow to do that. And that's probably a good idea for the very reason you said at the outset, 
which is that if you don't get a college degree, your earning potential is about a million dollars less over the course of your career compared to somebody who does have a college degree. That's a really significant difference. So it makes, you know, there's some logic to it. The, the other problem, though, is that people don't get good guidance on this. So I know people who have taken on student loans to go to university, but then they study in a degree where they're never going to get a job. The degree doesn't lead anywhere. And you have to really think carefully. You know, if what's on the other side of university is a four-year internship, you know, where you're going to be not paid, uh, how are you going to pay your student loans? It's going to be tough. And then you end up with a professional job that only pays forty or $50,000 a year. You're going to be saddled with student loans until you're 50 years old. And that's a reality for an awful lot of people. So what universities do not do is disclose salaries for the jobs that they train people for. They're very happy to tell you about the people who get the great jobs, but they don't provide any kind of like average. And I don't even know if they have that information at their disposal, but it'd be helpful because you're talking about making a purchase here that is the largest consumer purchase you are going to make in your lifetime apart from buying a home, right? So the biggest investment most people make, or the biggest purchase they make is a home. Um, we often think the second biggest purchase is a car, but that's not true because university is the price of a car each year. It's like buying four cars. And that's a fancy ass car. That's right. If you go to an elite university, you're, you know, you're talking uh, close to $80,000 a year all in, right? So yeah, anyway, this is, uh, this is all interesting, but what should we do about this, right? Right. So back to vaporizing. If you go back to the vaporized theory, the vaporized theory is, gee, right now the university is using a physical system to deliver information, right? The way we're doing it is actually we have campuses and buildings you know, covered with ivy and a bunch of books inside of the buildings and physical professors you know, with dogs and stuff. Well, what if you replaced all that with information? What would that look like? Now, in my book, I, I, I posited a bunch of different examples of how that might work. But you know, this, that was a couple of years ago. Now we've had COVID-19. And everybody has begun to realize that they can work from home, they can learn from home, they can do this stuff remotely. And so all of a sudden, we're all experts in working remotely. Now, how did education fare during COVID-19? The answer, I think, uniformly is it failed. I don't know a single parent who feels like their child got their money's worth from their tuition when all they were really paying for was a Zoom call. People felt like they got ripped off. I know many students who decided to just punch out and take a year off and go do something else and just dropped out for a year because they didn't want to spend the tuition on a Zoom call. Uh, I know many teachers, I've spoken to many teachers in California who had to teach remotely for either grade school or high school, and they felt that they were not adequately prepared. We're here, say, I live in Los Angeles, where the LA Unified School District was quite proud. I talked to them in 2019, and they said, we've solved the digital divide. We now know that every student in the LA Unified School System has a digital device so they can actually get, you know, get a hold of the digital learning programs that we have. That sounded great. But what happened during COVID-19 is that the parents needed those devices to do their jobs. So they kicked the kids off the computer. They kicked the kid off the smartphone. So now you had students in some schools... 25% of students failed to complete their education last year. This is a crisis. It hasn't really been dealt with. It hasn't been addressed. Some schools are talking about adding an additional 10 days next year to try to catch up. That doesn't seem smart. And one thing, uh, one, one school teacher told me is she said everybody should just repeat. And the students who want to proceed to the next, you know, who feel like they're ready to go next grade, let them go. But for the, those who want to repeat a year, we should just let them repeat a year because we don't feel like we had the educational outcome that we wanted. All this is a long-winded way of saying that COVID-19 forced all of our learning systems, all of our education systems to deal with remote education, to deal with essentially what I call vaporized education. And we failed across the board. 
maybe there's a few incidents of success, but generally speaking, it was not a good outcome across the board. This is disastrous. And the worst part, in my view, is that it was not unforeseeable. First of all, a pandemic was something that was well predicted for 20 years. So there's no reason not to be prepared for that. But also with universities, I've been telling universities now for 10 years that they need to begin to develop remote learning and not because of a pandemic, but because they're going to be able to extend and reach many more people. If you zoom out past the United States and look at the world right now, there are 2 billion people who need to be educated and they're not going to get education at the level that a university in the United States can provide. They're never going to set foot on a university campus in the United States. And yet those people require that kind of skill in order to compete on the global level, because we now have globalized workforces. And now that you can work anywhere, placeless employment is possible. It now means that you compete against a global workforce. We need to train all those people. The way you're going to get that done is not by building more college campuses and having a lot more professors and more dogs and more books and more Ivy and so forth. That's not the way to do this. The way we're going to do this is with software. And it could even be self-learn, so people could teach themselves. Now, the great news since I wrote my book is that the number of free resources for education has absolutely skyrocketed, and people are using them. Uh, one, one great example, which isn't in my book, I should have included it, is YouTube has turned into, you know, YouTube is many things to many people, but one of the things YouTube does really well is any subject that you want to learn about, you can find a YouTube video on, and it's free. This is rather remarkable in the history of humanity. This has, a resource like this has not existed. So there are resources available for people who want to learn on their own. Now, is that the same thing as a college degree? There's a great question. You know, is that the equivalent of a college degree? Clearly not, right? Clearly not in the eyes of someone who's hiring, clearly not in the eyes of somebody who's purchasing. Yet, more and more and more workers are starting to realize that the four-year college degree isn't enough to get you through a 40-year career. They're starting to realize that you have to do a lifelong learning commitment and you have to continuously upgrade your skills. And this is where vaporized education is incredibly valuable. It's for people who are already working, who realize I need a new skill. I got to upgrade. I got to learn how to master this piece of software. I got to learn how to master this workflow. And you can take a course. And sometimes the courses are short and they're very cheap, often free. Absolutely. And I recently had that experience. I wanted to upgrade my Unity 3D programming chops to uh, do a specific set of things, right? Great software, man. Great product. And, uh, you know, I've used it in the past for doing uh, some scientific work, but nothing what I would call publishable game quality. And I said, I want to think about possibly doing a game in this area. And I was, I've got to get some upgrade on the 2D side of the 3D program. And I think I spent 80 bucks for a Coursera course uh, in the domain, which sucked. It was oh. terrible. The guy was incomprehensible. It moved way too fast. It uh, didn't provide good references. I thought, what a waste of money. Uh, but then I just said, what I should have done originally was jumped on YouTube, and I quickly found uh, half a dozen <laughs> videos that in less total time and for free taught me more than what I needed to know. And so I just wanted to highlight for you that, that yet yeah, absolutely, YouTube, if someone would curate it, if, if one could have a guide through it somehow for people Anything you want to know, you know, from, you know, of course, we all know, you know, you want to figure out how to get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich out of your VHS, look on YouTube and, you know, all the how to's. I mean, that's just how you do everything now is, is YouTube. Jim, you're touching on a really important point. So you're absolutely right. The resources are out there, but they're not curated in a way that makes them easy to find. And what there is a great need for is someone who can be kind of like your knowledge navigator who says, all right, look, I've looked at all the courses on Unity. I've looked at everything that's available. Unity has a huge website called Learn where they have programs that will teach you how to use their tools as well, right? 
So someone who can look across all of that stuff and guide you to the exact course that you want, or at least give you a list, you know, short list of courses you should consider. And maybe also explain why, because maybe there's a couple, you know, prerequisites that would help you be master the material even faster or better. Um, you wouldn't know that as a new user. So you need someone to explain it to you. So that curatorial process, that functions not here yet. I think it's a great big opportunity for anyone who's listening because that's true across every discipline, whether it's, you know, learning a musical instrument or foreign language or how to cook or where to travel. I mean, there, there's a lot of learning that we need to do in, to, to understand how this modern world works and guidance there could be great. But the other thing you mentioned that I think is important to circle back to is how bad Coursera and Udacity courses are. And I agree with you. When those companies got started, they had the grand ambition of kind of scaling up what was known as a MOOC at that time, a massively online open course. The original MOOCs were created in Canada and they were multimedia and they were collaborative and participatory. However, when Udacity and Coursera launched, they found that the efficient way to do this, the industrial approach to scaling up education was to simply hire a good lecturer, put him in a lecture hall, stick a camera in the back and videotape the guy. Now we all know, you don't need the internet to know this. We all know that learning from video is very poor. Retention is very, very poor. We also know that participating and learning by doing is one of the best ways to retain information. So where I think Udacity and Coursera went wrong is that they think just transmitting the information is how people learn. That's not true. That's a video. That might be entertaining, that might be fun, it's entirely passive and you retain very little of it. Far better would be something participatory. And I'm interested in things where peers teach each other. And I think there's another huge opportunity. So what would be really great for you is if you could get a mentor who knew how to use Unity tools, and Unity might, you know, it'd be an opportunity for Unity to pair you up with people who are expert level or even intermediate level who can just teach you. We see this again and again at university where students teach each other. Eric uh, Mazur is a professor at Harvard. I think I cite some of his work um, because he's been very much at the forefront of this idea of pure teaching. He calls himself a reformed lecturer. So what Eric Mazur learned is that the less he talks in the classroom and the less he relies on lecturing, the more he encourages students to share information and teach each other in their own words, with their own examples, their own metaphors that make it more relevant to young people today, we found that would make him much more successful as a professor, he had much better educational outcomes. And, you know, if you think about it, like, what is a university lecture? A lecture, it's the oldest way of teaching that we have at universities. It predates the book. University of Paris, 1100 AD, right? Exactly. So this is like <laughs> when books were scarce and expensive and handwritten, they were chained to a desk and someone would read to the room. It's why it's called an auditorium. You're there to listen. And the lecture is reading, right? A lectern is where you read that book. That's because books were scarce. Once books became, you know, printed and, and widely distributed in, you know, in 1450 and thereafter, the need for a university lecture was less and less and less. And yet that's our classic paradigm. And what's weird to me is that Coursera and Udacity have encoded that ancient practice of a lecture into this modern delivery system of Internet education. And it completely misses the mark. Uh, I think they could be 10 times more effective if their lectures were replaced by interactive learning programs. Speaking of which, we should talk about VR for a second because I've had the opportunity since I wrote my book to look at VR for education, VR for training, and VR for actual school education. And it's remarkably effective. Uh, we hear a lot about VR for games. You know, the general take on virtual reality is that it hasn't been very effective or it's a permanent sunrise where the sun never fully rises on the industry and people haven't adopted it and no one's going to wear a headset to entertain themselves. We hear all that stuff. That's sort of true, although now this equipment's gotten so much better, particularly the Oculus equipment has gotten incredibly good. 
Facebook pumping something on the order of $10 billion a year into the field. They're making it good. They're really committed to virtual reality. Uh, but as a result, now there are a number of games that do make money. So that's growing nicely. It's actually promising. But what people are overlooking is education. And I think it, the potential for education in VR is enormous. And the reason for it is simply this. It's entirely experiential. You're in the system, right? You are experiencing it firsthand. VR education that I've experienced is unforgettable. When we talk about how much do you retain, I think it might be the most powerful mechanism ever invented to transmit skills and cause people to retain them. Far more effective than watching a YouTube video or watching a lecture on Coursera. Yeah, interesting. Now you have some point. I've gotten back into VR. You know, I dabbled a little bit in VR back in the mid '90s. I got to you know know uh, Jaron Lanier, and he and I chatted a fair amount about it. We looked at some of the stuff. It sucked, right? That's that's the OG VR. Yeah. yeah, stuff was terrible. But lately, I've been playing with the new Oculus, not the Rift, the Quest Two. Thing is amazing. In fact, we did what might be the first VR podcast using the Oculus Quest 2. I, it was not my show because I don't do a video show, but a guy invited me on his podcast and we got to be friends. He said, let's do a second one that's in VR. And I said, oh, why not? So I did it. And it was surprisingly good. I didn't get nauseous or sick or anything else. I played around a little bit with the Quest 2 games and you know, I haven't frankly found any of them that make me come back for more. But give us a pointer to some place that has some good educational content for VR. Oh, I'd be very proud to tell you about the Carson Center at the University of Nebraska. I'm very proud to be affiliated with them as an advisor. This has an endowment from the Johnny Carson Foundation. Of course, Johnny Carson went to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, where he was educated. And he um, is a huge patron of the school, particularly for the performing arts and their fine arts curriculum. Three years ago, they created a new center for emerging digital arts. Now, I'm emphasizing arts because this is not a computer programming class. This is not computer science. This is not electrical engineering. However, the students work with those students. Uh, they collaborate with them. And it's quite a remarkable program. If you consider that in the next 10 years, we're going to have an enormous opportunity with things like digital twins, immersive 3D worlds, building digital replicas of real world systems, the ability for people to immerse themselves in entertainment. The list goes on and on. But just about every field you can think of, there will be some application, either in augmented reality or virtual reality. These are not just engineering problems. These are not just software problems. They are, but beyond that, they're also huge design problems. And I'm so thrilled with the program that they've created at uh, the Johnny Carson Center at the University of Nebraska because it is a phenomenally good, world-class, state-of-the-art program right in the geographic center of the United States. This is not a university on the East Coast. This is not an Ivy League school. This is not one of those prestige schools. This is a regular Big Ten college. And they've got this phenomenal state-of-the-art system to teach people. And it's designed, literally it's designed to enable those people from the state of Nebraska and others who attend to get the skills that will equip them for the 21st century, for this immersive 3D participatory world that's coming. And I'm so proud to be affiliated there. The other thing I'm working on that's cool is a new project called the Virtual Film School. And this is exciting to me because it turns out, I, you know, I taught at the University of Southern California at the film school there. I taught digital media for a number of years. I started that program in the 90s. And um, at the time, I was questioning the value. Actually, that's where I started to doubt the value of higher education because it's a very expensive program to go to film school. And most of the people end up working at Starbucks. Well, they, it, or you know, maybe they become an executive or maybe they become something else. Now, where USC is great is uh, at the crafts like editing, screenwriting, producing. They're excellent. And those students do go on to careers. So that's a very powerful thing. 
But a lot of other schools around the country would love to have a film school. Uh, they don't have, you know, Oscar award winning professors on the faculty there. So how can they do it? Well, the virtual film school is an immersive school and it's, it's a placeless school and it can be taught by professors from anywhere. So literally a professor can moonlight or someone who's in the industry can moonlight and teach. Now, this is one of the cool things about virtual reality. When you take education into virtual reality, the professor can be in one place and the students can all be in different places, but we all meet in a virtual space together and we're together in time, but we're not together geographically. We're separated geographically. And as it turns out, a discipline like film lends itself to this because you can design different sets. You can show students how to frame a shot. You can show them where to position the camera and so forth. You know, things that would normally be taught with schematic diagrams on a whiteboard. uh, Now you can experience them firsthand in a virtual space. And so this is a very exciting thing. This is the, the virtual film school. And they've been running this program now at schools all over the world. So in Latin America, Uh, in the Middle East, all over Europe and the UK, in the United States, of course, and also in Asia. It's quite popular, and it's particularly popular with universities that do not currently have a film program, but they understand that visual communication is important, that people in the future will need to, in addition to being able to write, they'll need to be able to communicate visually and make images. And so schools would like to add a film program. This is a very low-cost and efficient way to do it. All you really need is a VR headset, and you can get started. And again, we can demonstrate the results. So one of the things that's cool about VR education is you can take the immersive class and then you immediately go out and start making films. And the films are quite good. Uh, so you see an instant result. And I think it's a more effective way to teach that than, say, uh, a video course you know, that you might get on a website. Is there yet a clearinghouse or a, you know, the equivalent of MOOCs or something like that for VR education? None that I'm aware of. And actually, it's an interesting point. As the whole web moves to 3D, there's a new opportunity arising, which is how do I find anything? So it's not too hard to imagine that as uh, spatial computing grabs hold and you know the 2D web turns into the 3D web, it's not too hard to imagine that there'll be a proliferation of websites and virtual worlds and metaverses and other kinds of immersive experiences. And the question then is, how do you find them all? Because there'll be too many. Uh, you know, For instance, just to frame the problem, if you look at your iPhone and you go to the app store, there are millions of apps. <laughs> You know, literally, right? Scrolling through a list on your phone is not a very efficient way to find anything. If you know what you're looking for and you type in the search bar, that works. You know, you'll find it pretty quickly that way, but you have to know in advance. So that means discovery actually happens someplace else. And then you come to the store to just to make the purchase. But browsing and finding stuff is a super inefficient process with mobile apps. Well, with the 3D world, that's going to be even more confusing and more difficult, particularly if you have to install software, if you have to download something. These are gigantic impediments. So it's easy to see then that the world is moving to 3D and spatial computing. I think that's a given. I also truly do believe that when the web goes 3D, it's never going to go back to 2D. Like, you know, when when it flips, it's like the mobile web. When the whole internet flipped to the mobile web, that became the primary point of access. That became the primary mode of interaction. And yeah, there's still websites you can see on your computer browser. Those don't go away. But the center of gravity shifted to mobile. And I think the center of gravity is also going to shift now in the next 10 years to 3D and immersive experiences. But right now, there's no good mechanism for finding this stuff. It's not limited to education. That, that's a giant problem. Like, who's going to be the yeah, Google? It needs to be a yeah, Google for the metaverse, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Hey, one of you young entrepreneurs out there, you want to be a trillionaire? Create the Google for the metaverse. Oh, by the way, fix goddamn streaming video while you're at it. We talked about <laughs> last night. God damn, does that piss me off? You know, they keep trying to sell me yet another subscription that I don't want and don't need and trying to find anything. God damn it. It's a really interesting point. So, yeah. You're talking about OTT video streaming services or what they call, you know, the video on demand on the Internet. That's all we watch anymore. You know, like uh, we now have Apple TV, Hulu, Netflix, 
And fortunately, Amazon consolidates some of the other services. And then we had to buy HBO Plus. Yeah. Even though we had HBO through Prime Video, they didn't include the plus in that, those cocksuckers. And uh, <laughs> pretty good, though. It's good. So I canceled the HBO subservice under Amazon now. And so I got like seven of these goddamn things, right? It's there's ridiculous. A, so just- there's a ton of irony here. The first one was it turns out that cable TV, flipping channels on cable TV with a remote control was actually a pretty good way to discover stuff. You could just flip through channels, right? In retrospect, we all complained about it. You know, we bitched bitterly about cable TV, but at the time, that, they actually did a pretty good job. Whereas now, You've got these gigantic silos and they don't interoperate. They don't talk to each other. So discovery across the different platforms, very difficult for the video on demand. Second thing is, remember everybody used to complain about their cable bill. I'm paying too much because I have to pay for ESPN and I don't even watch ESPN. Why am I paying for that or whatever? You know, the bundle. That was what people complained about. Okay, so we now have succeeded in unbundling TV into these different video on demand services. And when you add up all the service fees, it turns out that's more expensive than the cable bundle was. So cable was actually a pretty good deal in retrospect. Well, I don't know about that. I think I'm actually, I think we're spending less than half of what we did when we had satellite TV or uh, or such. And I still, you know, kind of commend Amazon, right? If you're not a uh, TV addicto, which we never have been, and you watch an hour on average a day or something, Amazon's still a wonderful way to go, right? You, uh, you know, you pay three bucks to watch a, uh, an episode or something. And uh, you watch uh, 30 of them, you know, not even that many. I could probably watch more like 20. I like the fact that they have movies day and date with the release in the theater. Because candidly, who wants to go to a theater? And I'm not just talking about COVID-19. The theater sucked before COVID-19 as well. The movie theaters failed to upgrade and to be competitive. And meanwhile, the TV in your living room gets better and better and better and cheaper, cheaper, cheaper each year. And anyway, that's enough of this aside that we both are passionate about. Let's get back to education. (laughs) So the point is, there's all kinds of stuff from which one could build a lighter, vaporized university. And there is some motion in in that regard. And you pointed to a few of them in the book, and we both know about a few others. But nonetheless, 95 or 98% of people who think they need a college degree to make it in the world, go get one, right? Uh, why hasn't this crystallized? Why, why hasn't it more specifically gone the opposite of crystallized? Why hasn't higher education vaporized or at least started to in some significant way? So, so don't look to the universities to change their business model because, frankly, they're getting all sorts of reinforcement right now from the marketplace. Uh, you talk to any elite university and they're like, hey, we could replace all of our North American students with students from Asia and other countries tomorrow. And probably the grade point averages would go up. And oh, by the way, we wouldn't have to give them financial aid. That's exactly right. In fact, that's you know sort of a dark secret of private education in the United States is that they fleece international students for the full bill. There's no tuition offsets or uh, grants or any kind of scholarship available. Yeah, our University of Virginia is uh, embarrassingly deep in that game. But bear in mind, there's actually a real benefit for the United States in that, in the sense that the way we teach kind of teaches people how to be American, how to think like an American. And that's a tremendous benefit that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't write that off. I'm not trying to criticize or carp about that, but the point I'm making is simply that there is tremendous market demand for this current product, this old age old product where the price keeps going up as we talked about earlier. So don't expect those folks to change. This is an industry that's ripe for disruption. It's exactly like healthcare. You know, the healthcare system is not going to change on its own. There's got to be pressure from outside. So the big question is, what is the market for the other product? And who's going to create that? Who's going to create demand for that? That has to come from employers. Employers need to start letting people know that a degree from a university isn't actually going to be the thing that helps you get a job. I 
think that might be happening. I'm not sure. I don't have evidence to support that. But I think employers are starting to realize that this, um, you know, this con job of just showing a diploma as a proxy for actually doing the due diligence on the people that you're hiring, that that doesn't work. On the other hand, a lot of jobs now are using artificial intelligence uh, to screen applicants. Like that's very common, right? Where you send your resume in and some kind of robot scans through it for keywords. I think a lot of great candidates get lost in the sauce. And if you don't have the credentials, that's going to hurt you. You're not going to be qualified to apply for that job. So this notion that we're hung up on old credentials from the 19th century, I think is one of the problems. And in my book, what I argue for is something called micro-credentials. And these are something that you would be able to update. You'd be able to post them on the internet. They could be queryable. So someone who's looking at your resume on the internet can actually query them to see if they're valid. You know, it's something that you could post on your LinkedIn. I actually think LinkedIn ought to be in this business. Now they do own lynda.com, which they've turned into LinkedIn Learning. I think there's a massive opportunity here in issuing credentials. So for instance, you know, Jim, you mentioned a moment ago, you took a course, you know, upping your 3D programming skills with Unity. Did you get a credential for that? Did you get any kind of certificate that shows that you've gotten some skill or, or was there a path to such a thing? If you took like five more courses, could you get a credential? And if not, you got to wonder like, well, wait a minute, I'm not getting the signaling value. You know, I can put that on my resume. You don't need to, but you know, someone who took that course might want to let employers know that they have that skill. How does the employer independently verify? So right now, if somebody says that they have a degree from the University of Iowa, an employer is not going to question that. Uh, if they did, they could get the transcript or they could demand you know, some kind of verification. But typically, that's sufficient. That assertion is sufficient. The problem right now is that these online learning programs have not succeeded in credentialing, and they need to solve that problem. So they're not solving the whole problem right now. They're delivering the education. And I'd argue in some cases, it's equivalent to or better. In many cases, it's not yet there. It's a cheaper but disruptive you know, kind of inferior product, but a much lower cost. Nevertheless, what they don't do right now is an equivalent job of, of signaling the value with a credential. That's a giant opportunity. Yep. That, that, that seems to be a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem, right? In that once you create the credential, then the, the employers don't necessarily take it up. And until the employers take it up, it's hard to justify spending the money to get this new credential. It was open badges, I believe you you talked about. Yeah, the Mozilla open badge, that's an open standard for credentials. Uh, and, and quite a few companies, I think like Adobe had uh, had issued some open badges uh, as a micro-credential. Uh, so there was some motion around that. I, don't, I haven't checked to see how that's doing lately, but it makes a good deal of sense to me. And, and bear in mind, the kinds of credentialing we're talking about here, this is like super pragmatic. So in the beginning of this discussion, you and I were complaining and kvetching all about um, how students are paying a lot of money for some pretty nebulous learning outcomes. And are those things even related to the needs of the job market? Well, now what we're talking about is online delivery of very, very specific skills for very specific jobs. And so in a way, there's a vacuum, right? Because those skills are not taught at universities students graduate, they get in the workforce and they realize they need it. So they go out on their own initiative to accumulate more skills. That's the lifelong learning commitment that I was talking about a moment ago. Smart people invest in themselves and they find the time to learn new skills. And anybody that's serious about working in the information economy in the 21st century knows that that's a lifelong commitment because skills get outdated really fast. So we all have to upskill constantly. And the way you're going to do that is not to go back to university. We don't have time for that. You're busy in your career. You're raising a family. So you're going to do that at night on your own time, on your phone, on your tablet, or on your PC uh, with a remote learning course, just as you did. Your example of Unity is a good illustration. That's a very pragmatic skill. That's a very career-bound skill. And it, would, it should increase your market value. 
Uh, we don't do a good job with this. By the way, they do a better job in other countries. Uh, so in the ensuing time, since I wrote my book, I had a chance to learn about Australia and the UK and how they do credentialing for even for skills, uh, even for like craft skills like uh, electricians and carpenters and so forth. There are certain jobs by law that only a certain type of credential can do. You know, so for like a home electrician, a basic electrician has a set of things he can do. But then certain types of tasks, you have to have like a senior electrician or someone with a certain credential. And they just simply have credentials that are available for this. They're issued, they're provided by the schools, but they're regulated by the government. We don't really have that system in the United States. You know, our, our government doesn't get into like uh, vetting the credentials. And as a result, it's a bit of a free for all here, but that's not true in other countries. The main thing there is that the credential converts your effort and your expense of learning into more income, right? That's exactly, that's the mechanism for getting paid more. And that uh, seems like an interesting opportunity for, uh, and it's catalytic, you know, for an entrepreneur to work on the credentialing system. Do you, do you know of any people that are trying to do something in this space in the U.S.? I would say that in, in the high-tech world, in the high-tech industry, there's an awareness that there needs to be an alternative credentialing system. And I'm starting to see evidence of that from employers to the point where, Jim, they're making it possible for prospective employees to get the credentials that they want. And I want to underscore this. This is a really important thing. The number one issue you hear now in the United States after COVID-19 is we can't find the workers that we need, right? You hear that again and again and again. In every field from uh, AI to uh, flipping burgers. Yeah, that's right. And during the pandemic, what some companies did was they gave workers or their employees access to online learning. And sometimes that was even, you know, uh, like state schools, like local colleges, uh, they would give them, allow them to earn extra credits and so forth there, which I think is a really smart way to keep people busy, occupied and growing their skills during the pandemic. But now I think on the other side of the pandemic, what we're going to start to see is that employers say, okay, we can't find the employees that we want. We have to create the employees that we want. And so therefore we're going to offer prospective uh, candidates the opportunity to learn the skills that we want and we'll see how you do. So it almost be like a prerequisite to applying for a job, like take this free course. That credential goes with you, whether you get the job or not, or whether you want the job or not, you can take the free course. This to me makes a ton of sense. Uh, companies should do this, right? They should invest in the workforce. They should invest in education. Most companies know it. But Jim, here's an interesting thing and another dirty, dark secret. Have you ever done any of those online learning courses that are offered by the HR department in a corporation? I have. They're terrible. They suck. They're poorly produced. They're boring. They're tedious. They're too slow. There's no way for you to modify or customize it to your own time. You basically have to sit there and grind through the thing as it's formatted. So they're, they're the exact opposite of what I'm proposing for vaporized education. There's, there's no way for you to get the benefit of them in terms of it fitting your own workflow, your own style, how you want to learn, what you want to learn. Um, these are things that are imposed by HR, and typically they're imposed in order to meet some kind of regulatory requirement. <laughs> tell me about it. And, and so you can tell it's like a hollow exercise where everybody's just going through the motions. They're checking off items on a checklist to show the government that they did it, but their heart isn't into it. They're not really looking for an educational outcome that's positive. This is disastrous. And if there's any CEOs listening, this is a topic that I care deeply about, and I'd be very happy to get into further. The Typical problem is that there's some regulatory requirements, and so the people who are involved in compliance hand the problem to the HR department. The HR department goes out to the marketplace. There's tons of commodified online learning programs that are available. They're cheap. Often they purchase the cheapest one that's available. No one's really paying attention to, is this something that employees like or want or will benefit from? And so it's just another burden on the employee, no real gain and some expense. There's a much better way to do that now. 
And this is a place where, for instance, I, and I know this is a little grandiose, but this is the kind of thing where if you had VR learning, it would be faster. It would be way more better retained. People would learn more. They have better educational outcomes. And I think people would be excited about doing it as well. It, it just doesn't take much effort. It takes imagination. And unfortunately, in corporate America and the HR department, that is lacking. One of my uh, uh, brags about my business career is I somehow managed to avoid ever taking a single HR training anything. <laughs> I don't know how I managed to do it. None, zero, exactly zero. I think at least once or twice just not showed up and nobody ever dragged me to it. So uh, I can say I never sat through the old school in person, you know, them reading out of the handbook. You're not missing much. But I but I have heard just what you said, that they all suck the big one, right? Yeah, they're terrible. And talk about VR, imagine, imagine one of the ones that's hot now, and for good reason, I support this, in fact, I was one of the people that brought it in at the Santa Fe Institute, which is anti-sexual harassment training. Yeah. That can be done right in VR, you know? Yeah. Uh, never, never do this, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, literally, it'd be way more useful and entertaining and people would retain the information much better. Yeah, that's, that's the point is when you experience it, you never forget it. I mean, it, I, I cannot describe to people how profound immersive education is it because you feel like you had that experience. You know, in other words, when you remember it, you remember it just like a memory of something that you did for the good ones. I mean, obviously there's tons of stuff that's not, doesn't reach that level. I'm not trying to say that that's a blanket assessment, but that's the level that we can get to today with VR. And I think many people who might've looked at VR a few years ago and discarded it because it wasn't ready, they might want to revisit that decision today because I think that education in VR is extraordinarily powerful. I mean, we don't need to explain how it works with a game, but the more you can make education like a game, I know that sounds really dumb, but the more we can do that in VR, the more effective the learning will actually be. You'll have much better retained information. It doesn't work for everything. You know, for instance, I think you could probably teach someone how to code. Like, for instance, the Unity program that you took might not improve with VR, but it might, right? It might. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can see it because you could have the code in one part of the VR space and then you could have... The, uh, the code running in another part of the VR space. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, like Zuckerberg gave an a a, a interview recently on The Verge that was actually quite interesting because he talked all about the metaverse and his vision for it. And one of the things he talked about was collaborative working. And while I was reading that, I was thinking about education and employee education. And he talked about having multiple screens. He said one of the problems workers have today in the knowledge economy is that they can only have one or two screens on their desk. There's a limit. Or three. Or three, three is, is max, right, typically. And he said, what if you need five? You know, what if you have a spreadsheet on one and an email on another, and then there's like the project you're working on, and then there's like some kind of video conferencing. You know, there's a lot of cases where you could use multiple screens. So today what we have is multiple windows on a single screen, but that's inefficient because they're on top of each other. Um, you know, that, that's not an efficient way to do it. And he said, look, in VR, you can have as many screens as you need. So the, the very example we were just talking about, you might have one where you're where you're doing the work, where you're learning the program, another one where you see the code that you're writing, and a third, you could see the actual output of what it would look like. Those three screens would be great, and that's very possible to do. So when we think about VR, it's not just about, you know, us play-acting a scenario, uh, like your sexual harassment training idea that you just shared. That's one way to do it, and that's very powerful because it's very visual, very memorable, and you feel like you experienced it. But another one is what else can we do with the space that we're in that we can't do in the real space that we are. A third idea there that uh, Zuck doesn't talk about so much, but I think it's very powerful, is the ability to bring a teacher in periodically. So let's talk about the role of a teacher. If you're doing self-directed learning and if you're doing you know, basically on-demand learning, self-guided, a moment ago you mentioned that there's a, a gap in the market right now where there's not a good curator. That's true. 
Now imagine if there were a kind of academy that you could join that would aggregate the best resources, customize that for you as a service, and then on the other side, check in with you to see how you're doing and maybe give you additional courses. And that organization could also certify and issue some kind of you know completion certificate or a signal that you actually mastered certain skills or something. Now, today, I'm not sure that such a thing exists. I'm sure your listeners will know if one does, and then we'll hear about it in the comments, and that'd be great. I'd love to learn about it. I see that as a great big gap because right now there's just enormous fragmentation in this space. There's tons of innovation. Some of it's good. It's hard to find the good stuff because there's a proliferation of stuff that's not that good. Some of it's very opportunistic. Some people are doing the best they can with what they've got, which is a camera on their computer and a mic. So they're going to just talk to the camera and that's how they teach. Okay. It's not great. You're not pushing the medium. You know, there could be more done with this uh, today. And then as we look at things like immersive education, some of those skills are outside of the range of the people who have the information to teach. And there's another gap. So there could be some kind of an aggregator that brings together the best teachers, equips them to teach the best way, and then finds the students and tailors that program to them. By the way, this is all stuff that universities don't do either. Well, as you said, they, why would they, right? They're getting, uh, you know, 65 grand a year, fat, dumb, and happy, right? Why the hell would they want to break the cartel, right? Positive reinforcement. That, that's the last thing they want. They're going to be the ones that are dragged to it only by disruptive competition. You know, the funny thing about that is that cartel works to the benefit of lesser universities. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're talking about the elite Ivy League schools or the little Ivy League schools, those schools are doing fine. And that if you're lucky enough to get into one of those colleges and can afford it, you're gonna have a superb education and you're gonna come out with a superb career path if you want it, that's true. But there's a ton of other small schools, private schools that are not at that caliber, but they're priced the same. And they market themselves the same way. Or a bit less, right? But not not as much less as they should be. The discount doesn't happen, right? So uh, we used to have this argument when I worked in a movie studio about whether they should discount movie tickets. And they were firmly against. The theater owners didn't want to do it. So the, you know, it's the same cost to watch a movie, whether the movie's good or terrible. It's going to be $750 for all the tickets, which doesn't make any sense. Like, why don't they do demand-based pricing or quality-based pricing? Because that price is a signal of what you're going to get. But there's also people who are very price sensitive who are going to college and really want to shop around. But right now, that that um, price doesn't work very effectively as a signal in the education marketplace because a good brochure and a fancy campus from 100 years ago and, frankly, an excellent marketing person, that's part of that bloated administrative cost that we are talking about a minute ago, uh, those people can pull the wool over customers' eyes and then they can't discern, the shopper can't discern whether or not that a degree from that school or an education at that school is going to be the same quality as an education at a Harvard or a Williams or a Berkeley or Stanford. And uh, that's a real disservice to the, to the customer. It's interesting. Well, we're getting up on our time here. In fact, we're over the time. I think we were originally going to spend an hour on this, but it's such an interesting conversation that... Uh, I can talk to you all day. And our conversations always go off course, and we're talking about the metaverse and movie ticket prices. Oh, oh, it's been wonderful. I'm not complaining in the slightest. This has been wonderful. But I think the last thing I want to do is run two of my ideas by you. And, you know, you can be the Shark Tank guy, right? And tell me why I'm full of shit. Unfortunately, the first one you've already talked about several times, but I have a wrinkle to it that makes it better. Right? <laughs> and that is this... Uh, I actually wrote it down. I got it in writing, so I can prove I thought of it before we heard. Well, I heard all your ideas, which are very, very close, which is this idea that there ought to be a service for people who want to construct their own education, as you say, a curator, and, and a person who interacts with you, understands where you're at, spends a fair amount of time with you, right, and charges you a, a moderate amount of money, 
organizes the curriculum, vectors in real teachers where necessary, or at least strongly recommends that you should buy the version of this course augmented with the teacher, and here's why, et cetera, and basically manufactures for you a bespoke equivalent of a you know pre-work set of credentials for the career you want. And then here's the part you didn't have, but I think this is the clincher. This is what makes it work. So you young entrepreneurs out there want to make a billion dollars, here's one for you, which is that the same service now becomes your agent and it's committed to placing you in a job. And oh, by the way, gets 10% of your income for the next 20 years. Yeah, I, I love that part. The last part, it's the critical part, right? The agent becomes your agent and what does not get paid unless you get paid, right? And, and gets paid proportionally to what you make. So it gets 10% of your W-2 for the next 20 years or something like that, right? And I guarantee you could sell the piss out of that, right? Especially if you had any track record. It, you know, the advantage there is that that person doesn't get paid until you get the job that you want, right? So, so they are going to be hustling. And that's a very powerful incentive. They're not just selling you something. They're actually on the hook to go to help you get the income to pay for it. Skin in the game, as we like to say. The second thing is that that goes right after the student loan problem, right? Because right now, the way you do is you borrow a bunch of money to buy uh, something of dubious merit. You know, you don't even know if you're going to get your value out of it on the other side. And then your task is to go convert that thing you just bought into something that drives your career. That's very difficult. Not everybody navigates that so well. Here, you're going to have somebody theoretically who's experienced professional who's done it a few times who's going to help you guide you and has is on the hook. Right? Their incentives are aligned with yours. So I guess what I'm excited about and want to hear all that is that you put all those different ideas together into a nice way where the incentives are aligned. And of course, the buyers, they're going to need to see some proof, right? Because you're talking about the CAA or the William Morris Agency of Talented Workers of the Future. And I think that that's possibly very possibly the case. I know, for instance, personally, a person who does this for executives. He reached out to me when I was working at the movie studio, introduced himself. His name is Neil Anarski. He's a great guy. And he's like, hey, a talent has agents. You know, you deal with talent agencies all day long in the movie studio. How come executives don't have agents? Yeah, a buddy of mine almost launched that business in uh, 1991 before I got sucked back into corporate America. We said, why aren't there agents for executives? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, frankly, I'm worth 5% just for my negotiating skills, to tell you the truth. That's right. And, then, and companies rely on recruiters, but a recruiter is something different than an agent, right? Because an oh, agent- and they suck. Recruiters suck, and they're yeah. very expensive, uh, They and they're idiots, most of them. Uh, Pete Kennedy, I exempt you from the uh, one of my favorite recruiters. I, I hired lots of people through. You're not an idiot, Pete, but most of your contemporaries, idiots. <laughs> so, so the notion of an agent, that's someone who's got the right alignment of incentives to promote you and what makes you special and, and help you build up those skills and so forth. So that I think that's a very powerful solution. I'd love to see such a thing happen. I also know that this happens with business school. I know someone who is a coach for people who want to get into business school and will help you all the way through with preparing all your materials and writing your essays. They don't write them for you, but they help you, guide you. And as it turns out, the business schools actually like this because they feel like they get a higher caliber of candidate out of that process. And a better alignment, more realistic student, right? And that gives a clue about how this might get started. So you could say, okay, who's which companies are feeling the pain the most right now? Who's having the hardest time filling open job recs? Okay, go to those HR departments and say, if I find candidates, will you give us a fast track to evaluate them? That's all I'm asking for. You're going to evaluate them. You might not take them, you know, but just give me an open door to bring you candidates because I'll go create the candidates that you don't have. It solves a giant problem for industry. And oh, by the way, tell the, have them tell you what they want the people to know. Exactly right. And so then you would come back. Um, 
you know, there's a, there's a precedent for this. Uh, for a period of time, I was an advisor to the, uh, the, the Charleston Regional Development Alliance, which is down in South Carolina. And they had a real challenge there uh, back in the Clinton years when we had the peace dividend. Cold War was over and the U.S. Army shut down a whole bunch of bases, including South Carolina. And they freaked out because there was 40,000 people on that base. So all the jobs in that neighborhood, it wasn't just the 40,000 soldiers that were going to be gone. It was all the dry cleaners and car dealerships and all the other places around there. Massage parlors, you know, all that stuff, right? Well, yeah, they were worried that the economy was going to implode. And so they said, well, we have to get moving here. This is a bunch of business leaders that had to get moving. And so they created an alliance. And among the things that they managed to do, their, their job was to attract manufacturing because they realized they were, not, you know, North Carolina's right next door and they got the research triangle. So they're never going to compete on high tech. Although now they do have a decent and thriving small high-tech center. They wanted to win with manufacturing. So they wanted to attract manufacturers. And so they started talking to big manufacturing companies, car makers, tire makers, and so forth. What do you need? And they said, well, we need graduates who have these degrees. Like, mm, okay, we don't have any schools to teach that stuff. So Senator Ernst Hollings actually went around and created these special technical schools where they literally let the manufacturers specify the curriculum and the manufacturers in turn said, if you produce students with these skills, we will hire them. And now they have BMW and Michelin tires and a whole bunch of other. Volvo's got their Volvo USA is headquartered there. Yeah, a lot of Americans don't realize that there's a whole sector of automotive and tire manufacturing in South Carolina, Georgia and other parts of the Southeast corridor. Yeah, Greenville, South Carolina, one of the big BMW, I think, is there. Right? Exactly right. And that's all the result of these kinds of efforts. So, so the point we're making there is simple. Go to the employer. Ask them, what do you need? And then say, all right, if I bring that to you, I'm going to work hard to bring that to you. If I bring that to you, I just need to know that you're going to take these candidates. And, you know, they're not going to guarantee they're going to hire everybody, but they'll look at them. You know, that's a very reasonable deal. Yeah, and that's all you need. And particularly if you do a great job of curating the information. And why I like my idea is, as you point, as you call it, the alignment of values uh, to everybody's in the right direction. Me as the curator coach agent held a lot on me to make sure that you get well-educated so you don't embarrass me when you show up at one of my employers, right? And then with respect to the signaling value that we talked about that's, you know, in, in today's diploma, that problem goes away too here because now the signaling value is that that agent has placed, you know, 38% or 76% of their, of their graduates of this program have gotten really good jobs at these companies. Well, that would attract a lot of people who are sort of questioning, like, why do I want to take on all this student debt, thirty, forty thousand dollars of student debt for a nebulous degree at a school that's not the greatest school in the world for a career? I'm not even sure what it's going to be. If you could say, hey, do this thing and you've got a, you know, a reasonably good shot, a better than 50-50 shot of getting into the career of your dreams at a company that's good. Quite a few people would respond to that. All right, hit me with your other idea because I agree with you on that. Okay, the other one it actually works, it works with the other one. And this is actually an old idea that a buddy of mine had, actually we were business partners, had back when we were between ventures, we did two uh, ventures together, which is business boot camp. When you read Brian Kaplan carefully and Jason Brennan carefully, one of the things that, that will pop out for you is that one of the reasons hiring firms use four-year college credentials is not because they think you actually learned anything, but that the gauntlet of showing up, not being too drunk, knowing how to you know manage your time for four solid years is a measure of something, right? And uh, so it's a gauntlet that, you know, and we know that about what 40% of the people that start a four-year college degree never finish, right? And so it's a, so there is a drop. It's like the Marine Corps boot camp, you know, 40% get flushed out. So it does pick the 60%, some people say just the most boring because they're willing to plant their ass in a seat for four years, right? 
Uh, but there's a certain measure of some somethingness from being willing to put up with, you know, the obstacle course of four years. Even if you don't learn a damn thing. And Jason Brennan will say it quite explicitly uh, that there's some substantial value there. So what happens if instead of that, you intentionally designed a six month boot camp that was designed to flunk out 40 percent of the people or more, maybe 50 percent, was extremely high pressure, six days a week, 12 hours a day with respect to its academic content, was focused principally on making sure you had all the basics. I mean, a person who'd been in the college textbook business, me, can tell you their dirty little secret. Even Harvard offers courses on you know, remedial math, remedial English, and things of that sort. And most colleges, 30 40% of the enrolling freshmen take some kind of remedial course. So essentially make sure that anyone comes through this thing has all the basic reading, writing, mathematical skills, Teamwork, entrepreneurship, leadership, and followership, by the way, which is, people always talk about leadership. A few people talk about followership. Cooperation uh, is an emergent phenomena of leaders and followers, and hopefully both of which are, are, are transient and dynamic. And you run this six-month intense program, and you charge people a pretty penny for it, you know, 20 grand or something like that. And that comes out with the other part of the, of the credential, not the intellectual part. But the fact that you can go through a grueling six-month process that's full of the kinds of challenges that you will meet in the business world, Mm -hmm. which I would argue does a better job of separating the the sheep from the goats than can you tolerate four years of boring university? And so that does the other part, the part that Kaplan will acknowledge that the four-year universities actually do do, uh, but you can do it in a way that's scientifically designed for that purpose and is done in six months instead of four years for less than an eighth the price. It, it makes sense to me. It's a little bit like a tech accelerator program, right? So if a, if a startup company has gone through a tech accelerator and, and has been successful in that tech accelerator, you know, seed investors are going to take it more seriously. They're going to pay a little more attention to it. There's, there's a higher likelihood that a seed investor will be attracted because it's been vetted by somebody else. That's really what you're saying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Y Combinator, for instance. Yes, exactly. If you're a Y Combinator person, the doors are now open. Doesn't mean you're not going to get the boot when you talk to the VCs, but they'll at least talk to you. And, and also, you're going to learn something from just from proximity. Being next to all those hyper-competitive people is going to instill some level of skill, right? So uh, I know people drop out of those tech accelerators for, for all the reasons you just said, you know, they, they can't hack it, they can't cut it, they decide it's not for them, they change their minds, all that. But that's great. It's better to do it there than to do it once you got hired. This is a huge problem for companies when they make a bad hire, just getting rid of a person who doesn't fit. It's, it's bad for that person. It's bad for the company. It's expensive. You know, when I was a student, I wanted to learn about film, but I went to a college that didn't have a film school. And I got out of college and I was working in New York and I was working in the film business in particular with MTV and I needed to get film school skills fast. And someone said to me, oh, you should go to NYU. And I'm like, yeah, it's a two-year program. I don't, I'm not going to do it. Like, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. And they said, no, they have an uh, executive program. It's an executive course that was, I think it was like two months or maybe three months long. And I was like, hmm, I could afford to do that. And it was a great program. It was taught in the evening. So some people had work, uh, but most of us dropped out for a couple months to do this because it ended up chewing up all your waking hours. Um, but the first class was a lecture. And by the end of the lecture, you had a 16 millimeter camera in your hands and you were taking it apart, cleaning it. And then you put the film canister in a bag and you loaded the film. And like, that was your camera. And the next day you shot your first film. That was day two. Day three, camp. <laughs> day three, we watched all the dailies of the films and they were all out of focus and overexposed and bad, you know, and poorly shot and stuff. 
And the guy said, look, I could have spent six weeks teaching all this stuff, but I figured why not just give you the camera and let you go out there and make your own mistakes. Now, do you want to learn how to do exposure properly? Yes, we do. Okay, great. I'll tell you. And like your learning goes up. So this idea of compressing it down, taking all the air out of it, taking away the semesters and learning and the time spending, all that, just shrink it down. Can we accelerate this? Can we shrink it down to a six-week boot camp? I think it's a really intriguing notion. Certainly, that's going to be true for some industries. I don't know if it's true for all. But that's certainly going to be true for some. And I can tell you that course that I took, the one I did for the NYU film school program, changed my career. When I came out of it, I could do any job on a set. I was completely capable. And within a year of that, I was directing TV commercials. I'm not kidding you. Now, I had other skills working for me at that point. But, um, but that, that course taught me the things I needed to do to be competent on a film set. And that was all they were trying to do. We weren't watching true foam movies. We weren't reading about Hitchcock. We weren't debating theory. We weren't doing any kind of like semiotic discussions. If you want to do all that stuff, go to regular film school. That's what that's for. Go to NYU film school, not the executive program. This is 100% about skill building. It's like we are going to transmit the skills. And it was for like, you know, creative art directors at agencies and stuff. You know, just people who need to know the lexicon of what a film school is about. Okay, so that was back then. Now you can imagine a, a number of fields. In the beginning, I spoke at length about how artificial intelligence is coming and how it's going to cause us all to have to upgrade our skills so that we can learn how to work with machines. You can imagine a boot camp for this. And what's interesting, Jim, is let's think about what the business model for that might be. Because here, this might be something that companies pay people to go do. You know, where a company says, all right, look, all of you all have to upskill and you got to do it fast. And we're bringing in a team that's going to teach you. You, you can do it right in the office. Yeah, they might even give you the space to do it. Or it could be something that people do in order to switch careers and get into a more lucrative field. The two fit together nicely with each other because you can imagine that the agent would need, you know, this program uh, to kind of like further credentialize the people that they're offering so that they can, with a straight face, represent to the companies that are hiring that these people are actually capable of doing the job of working in a high pressure environment. Yeah, they have the right stuff in addition to knowing the right stuff. And those are two separate things. Well, Rob, I want to thank you again for just an astoundingly interesting conversation here. We have covered a fair amount of the content. In fact, I got through most of the content in your book, a couple of the long lists of stuff, which I wrote down we might want to talk about. We didn't get to. We talked about all the good stuff. And so, you know, in kind of recap, you know, the world is a changing and at a faster rate all the time. And so education is going to become even more important than it's been in the past for people who want to be able to make a good living. Second, higher education is fundamentally broken, Right in terms of being overpriced, classic bloated cartel. My words, I'm not putting these in Rob's mouth, but he's got to talk to these motherfuckers. Of course, I do too. I'm on all these boards of advisors and shit, but maybe they'll fire me. I don't care. But the uh, you know overpriced, bloated, slow-moving curriculum changes, et cetera. And all the stuff is there. As we talked about, VR is there. The content is there. We didn't even talk about EDX and things of like that, Khan Academy. All the content, most of it's there. But what hasn't happened yet is the credentialing, which you call out. And I didn't even, I never heard of open badges. And I went and did a deep dive after reading the book. And quite interesting. Looks like a really, really powerful uh, infrastructure. And so entrepreneurs out there, right? This is a trillion dollar business. Uh, go get yourself some. Right on. Hey, Jim, it's always a pleasure talking to you. We could go on for hours. I enjoy it so much. Thanks for giving me the chance to come back and visit you and talk about my book, Vaporized, again. Thank you. This is wonderful. So, yeah, if you want to, and most of all these topics came out of the book, Vaporized by Robert Tursick. It's available on Amazon and wherever else you buy your dead trees with ink smeared on them. All right. Thanks, Jim. 
production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.